Hello, this is Mark Heffley, and welcome to our third class in the Hebrews Bible Study series. Today we are diving into chapters 5 and 6, and I'm very excited. So last uh, last night um, we had technical difficulties, so we weren't able to record the, the, the live class, so this is just me coming back afterwards and, and recording some nuggets from what we talked about. All right, so um, before we dive into chapters five and six, thought it'd be helpful to just zoom out real quick and look at um, the letter to the Hebrews as a whole so far, kind of get our bearings, um, uh, our bearings in what's been talked about so far and what's coming ahead. So in chapters one and two, um, we talked about the, the first week, the letter to the Hebrews is making the argument that Jesus is greater than the angels. Why is the wise author making this argument? Because the according to Jewish tradition, the Old Testament law was mediated through angels. So if Jesus is greater than the angels, then uh, what he brings, the gospel he brings, is going to be greater than the Old Testament law. All right, so that's chapters one and two. And we also saw a lot of great stuff in here about who Jesus is and um, how he's equal with God, all that kind of thing. All right, so then moving on to chapter three, we, uh, the letter to, or the author of this letter makes the argument that Jesus is greater than Moses. So Moses is the most important figure, the central figure of the Old Testament, um, a representative of the law. Um, so if Jesus is greater than Moses, then what he brings is also going to be greater than what Moses brought. Um, it's important to clarify here, though, that the letter to the Hebrews is not, it's not denigrating Moses, it's not denigrating the Old Testament. Um, it's just arguing that Jesus and what he brings is greater than uh, what came before then it switched to, in chapter 4, to an exhortation. So if all of this is true about Jesus, then uh, what does it mean for us? Well, it means that we need to be faithful as Jesus was faithful. Um, I also uh, mentioned that at the end of chapter 2, the, the author announced the theme of chapter 3, 4, and 5, that Jesus is the faithful high priest and Jesus is the merciful high priest. So chapter three is going to, going to, we find the, it's going to talk about Jesus as faithful. So Moses was faithful in God's house. Jesus is faithful over God's house. So Jesus is faithful. Chapter four, part of the exhortation is we need to be faithful as Jesus was faithful. So the theme of Jesus as a faithful high priest. Chapter five picks up Jesus as the merciful high priest. And as it's doing this, um, the letter is also comparing Jesus with the Old Testament priests, specifically the Levitical priests, who would be the priests offering the sacrifices in the temple at the time of this letter, assuming that the temple was still around. So it's comparing Jesus to the priest to show that Jesus is greater than them, Again, Jesus is greater than the angels. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than the priests. Why is this all important? Chapter 5, he's laying the groundwork for, for explaining what Jesus did. 
the significance of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. So the, the priests offer sacrifices. Jesus offered a sacrifice. But uh, we'll talk about, we'll come back to this in just a minute. Jesus wasn't a Levitical priest. He wasn't a descendant of Levi. He was a descendant of David of the tribe of Judah. So how could Jesus be a priest and offer sacrifice and all this? Well, uh, Hebrews is going to connect Jesus with Melchizedek, this odd figure that who only shows up a couple times throughout the whole Bible very briefly. So Jesus is connected with Melchizedek in chapter 5. All of this is making the argument that Jesus is greater than the priest. Then he'll switch in chapter 6 to an exhortation that if all of this is true about Jesus, then don't fall away, basically. Why? Because what Jesus offers is greater than what came before, so don't return to what came before or else you're missing out on all that Jesus brought. <clears throat> okay. Before diving into chapter 5 and, well, yeah, mainly chapter 5, um, there are a couple things about the Old Testament that would be good to refresh in our memory to get our bearings. Um because it's kind of a foreign world to us. Or it can be a foreign world. Uh, first, want to talk about the Old Testament priests. And then second, the Day of Atonement. So, Old Testament priests. So, priesthood is present throughout Scripture. But there's different kinds of priests. Different kinds of priesthood. What is a priest, generally speaking? Well, the letter to the Hebrews gives us a broad description of a priest in verse 1 of chapter 5. I mean, it's talking specifically about high priests, but it also applies to any priest. So, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices. So, this is this is the what a priest does. Uh, acts on behalf of men. You can also expand it on behalf of all creation. Um in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices. Clearly, this this is done by the priests in the temple who offer bloody sacrifices, you know, goats and rams and bulls and all that. They offer sacrifices on behalf of men. And in doing so, they uh, kind of make a bridge between God and humanity. And not just humanity, but creation. They're supposed to take up creation and bring it back to God, participate with God and ordering creation, all of that. So that's the Levitical priest, but they're not the only kinds of priests. So way back in the first pages of the Bible, we see Adam and Eve. Uh, we can't get into all the nitty gritties about this, but Adam and Eve are described as priests in a temple. Um, one way we see this is the, the, the God's command to them to keep and to guard the the garden it's the same way that priests were described their their duty in the temple they were to keep into guard the, the temple so adam and eve are the the first priests um they're supposed to work with god in ordering creation bringing creation into relation with god like offering it up to god but then they sin and um the, the priesthood has changed. Now Now it's just the heads of the households. Um, they can offer 
animals as sacrifice. They can bless their children, these priestly activities. An example of this is, well, there's many examples. The patriarchs like Abraham and and Isaac and Jacob. Uh, We also see it in um, Job, the book of Job. He's a non-Israelite, but he offers sacrifices on behalf of his children and on behalf of his friends who mess up so much during the book of Job that he he has to offer sacrifice for them. So that's the heads of the household. Now, we get the picture throughout salvation history that God wants to wants to save humanity and bring it back not not to the same state as Adam and Eve he wants what we have after Adam and Eve is actually greater than what they had but as Adam and Eve were were priests in the temple of creation serving God that's kind of the picture of what God wants for all of humanity so his goal throughout salvation is salvation history is trying to bring humanity back and endow humanity with this dignity of being holy priests in in his service he's going to start doing this with the kingdom or the the nation at this point the nation of israel so god frees them from egypt leads them out into the desert to mount sinai and then makes a covenant with the people at mount sinai and um, if you have your bible before you you can turn to exodus chapter 19 um, verse 6 specifically where where god describes how he wants the whole nation of Israel to be a nation of priests, a holy people. They make a covenant with God at Mount Sinai, but of course, just like Adam and Eve, they quickly mess up, they worship the golden calf, they fall away, and the priesthood is restricted. Again, the priesthood is restricted just to a select group within the nation of Israel, the tribe of Levi. So the whole nation of Israel is this I mean, it's a huge group right now, but it's made up of 12 tribes who are descendants of the 12 sons of Jacob, whose name has changed to Israel. So he has 12 sons. Um, One of those sons is Levi. It's only Levi's descendants who can be um, priests. So they, they're, the, they're the priests, and they're the priests up until the time of Jesus. They're the ones in the temple uh, offering the sacrifices. Um, all right, so I think that's that's it. Oh, uh, so the important thing for, for this letter is to explain how Jesus is a priest and how Jesus offers a sacrifice. Is Jesus a descendant of Levi? No. So how does Jesus offer sacrifice on our behalf? This is where the letter brings in Melchizedek. So Melchizedek is this odd figure who first shows up uh, way back in in um, Genesis. So during the time of Abraham, um, Abraham goes and his nephew Lot gets in trouble. And so Abraham, his name is at this point is Abram. It gets a little confusing. I'm just going to say Abraham for simplicity's sake. So Abraham goes and sets a lot, sets, uh, uh, rescues Lot. And on his way back, he runs into Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is described, uh, you can turn to uh, Genesis chapter 14. And um, Melchizedek is verses 17 and following, 17 through 24. So he runs into Melchizedek and Melchizedek 
is described as a priest of the Most High, of God, and the king of Salem. And um, he offers bread and wine. I mean, there's all kinds of great things about this, but we're not going to get into all the details. And Abraham pays tithes to Melchizedek. He gives him stuff. Okay, so that's not much that's not much information about Melchizedek, but Hebrews is going to unpack it more. <clears throat> so um oh, where to start? So one thing is Salem. So Melchizedek is the king of Salem. Salem is the same city as Jerusalem. Uh which becomes the capital of the kingdom of Israel when David much later in time, David moves the capital to Jerusalem, and that's where the temple's built. Um, <clears throat> so Melchizedek, oh, what else was I going to say about Melchizedek? So Salem, um, oh, and he, the, the fact that Abraham pays tithes to Melchizedek means that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Um, and if Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, then Melchizedek is greater than Abraham's children, including Levi and his descendants. All right, so Hebrews is going to make a big deal about this when comparing the priesthood of Jesus with the priesthood of the Levites, that he's going to... He's gonna, say Jesus belongs to, or his priesthood, Jesus's priesthood, follows the line not of Levi, but of Melchizedek. And because Melchizedek was greater than Abraham and greater than the Levites, his priesthood is also greater. All right, what's the connection between Jesus and Melchizedek? David. So David comes after the Levites are already established, you know, so they're the only priests, right? Uh, the king before David gets in trouble, uh, Saul, he gets in trouble for offering sacrifice, even though he's not a priest. Uh, he gets the, the kingship ripped away from his family, his descendants, because he offered sacrifice when he wasn't supposed to. David, the last thing we read about David in Second Samuel chapter 24, the last thing we read is that David offers sacrifice and God accepts it. So what's the difference between what David did and what Saul did? It has to do with Jerusalem. So Melchizedek is the king of Salem, the king of Jerusalem and a priest of God Most High. David, when he moves the kingdom, the capital to Jerusalem, he thereby becomes the king of Salem, the king of Jerusalem, and as the king of Jerusalem, he becomes the new Melchizedek, uh, the new priest in the line of Melchizedek. Jesus, the descendant of David and the true king of Israel, uh, takes up this this priesthood. All right, so that's that's kind of a general idea of the priesthood, an overview of the priesthood. Next thing we have to look at is the Day of Atonement. So the Day of Atonement. You can read about it in the book of Leviticus in chapter 16. 
So it, the setting, the the narrative setting of Le- Leviticus is uh, God set the people free from Egypt. He's led them into the desert. He's made his covenant at Mount Sinai. The people mess up with the golden calf. God restricts the priesthood just to the Levites, the the Levites, uh, and then. Um, the book of Leviticus is situated here. It's a book of regulations for the the priests, um, the sacrifices, everything they have to do with the tabernacle and later the temple, that kind of thing. So that's Leviticus. In chapter 16, we read about this one very important feast day that the Israelites are supposed to celebrate every year where they offer in sacrifice a couple animals, they spread the blood around, and by doing that, they God somehow gets rid of their sin. Um, okay, so let's look at this ritual a little bit. I'm not going to read chapter 16. You can you can read it, and I'll just pull out some some nuggets for you. So the the tabernacle structure. I talked about this uh, the first week. In the first two chapters of of uh, Hebrews, um, but the the tabernacle structure is you have the the outer wall, and you walk in, uh, and there's this courtyard and an altar and a wash basin, and then uh, next to the altar is this tent. If you walk in the tent, that's the holy place. That's where the menorah is and a couple other really important things. And then part of that tent is divided off by a by a veil. And if you walk through past that veil, you'd see the Ark of the Covenant um, with the mercy seat on top. And that's the most holy place. So you have the, the outer courtyard with the altar. You have the tent, the holy place. And then you have a special section of that holy place, the most holy place, with the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, God promised to be present to his people. I mean, he he God's present everywhere, but he promised to be present in a unique way in the tabernacle and specifically in the most holy place, seated above the, the Ark of the Covenant. Since this is such a holy place, and since the people have messed up so much, only one person can go into the most holy place, and that's the high priest. So a Levite, but a specific Levite, uh, set apart as a high priest. So only the high priest can go in there, and he can only go in once a year for the Day of Atonement. And what he would do is he would he would take a couple animals and have to sacrifice um, a goat, uh, a bull, and a ram, and he'd take the blood, so that he would offer that sacrifice on the altar in the courtyard, then he'd bring the blood into the most holy place, along with, with incense. So the first thing he'd do is burn incense inside the most holy place, and you can, it's, the smoke from the incense is supposed to fill up the holy place, so that, basically, the high priest can't see anything. It's uh, it's a ritual replication of what God did on Mount Sinai. When Moses was invited up Mount Sinai, he was in God's presence, but the cloud surrounded Moses so that he couldn't see the face of God. Well, the tabernacle is a recreation of Mount Sinai, 
kind of a liturgical sacramental uh, way of being in God's presence like Moses was on Mount Sinai. So the most holy place is filled with with smoke and then the priest takes the blood of those animals and um, spreads it in specific ways in the in the most holy place. Then he comes out and spreads blood on the altar and then he comes out of the tabernacle um, and he takes a goat which we refer to as the scapegoat, and he presses down on the head of this goat, confessing the sins of all the people, and then one of the Israelites leads the goat out into the desert. Now, through all of this, God, in some mysterious way, is dealing with their sin, cleansing the tabernacle, cleansing the people, and then moving their sin out. Okay, so this there's a lot that could be unpacked about the Day of Atonement, but here's just a couple things to keep in mind. Um, it can seem very foreign to us, all the blood, animal sacrifices, this idea of sin, and um, wait, how could, how could the blood of goats do anything about sin? Okay, so why would God do this? Well, um, ritual, ritual is embodied theology. It's not only a way of celebrating what we believe, but it's a way of forming our beliefs and reinforcing those beliefs. Uh, Catholics were all about rituals. The The mass is, is a big ritual. Stations of the cross is a ritual. Um, uh, on, a, on a smaller level, just more universally, humans, we have all kinds of, of um, rituals like the ritual toast at the at a wedding uh, reception. We have rituals on an even smaller level, like our personal daily rituals. That and all these rituals serve not only to to celebrate kind of our cultural customs, our beliefs, and our practices, but it reinforces it. Um, so. So the whole ritual system laid out in the book of Leviticus and the Day of Atonement, in particular for our purposes today, serves to form the people. Uh, and one way it does this is to impress upon their minds and their imaginations the seriousness of sin and the antidote for sin, which is life. And this is where blood comes in. So why is blood offered? Blood was a... Uh, for the for the ancient, blood represented life. The blood contained the life of the person, the life of the animal. <clears throat> so God takes this universally recognizable symbol of life and then uses it in order to, as as part of this ritual, to, to, so that they can understand what God is doing and to form their understanding, to form their beliefs and their practices. So, their sin is so serious um, that it, um, and the the antidote to sin is is life. Life has to be given on their on their behalf. Why is sin serious? So for the for the Jewish mind, sin was was imagined almost like a like a physical substance that weighed down on you, and and corrupted uh, the people corrupted the the holy place and this is a this is a big deal because if we let sin run amok then it threatens to push god out of the most holy place and if god is out then the people are out of luck 
So God in his mercy gives them this ritual of the Day of Atonement where it 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 pushes this sin out. It washes the people clean of the sin and pushes it out and uh, leads it into the desert. Now, could, can blood of animals really do something about sin? I, yes and no. Um, ultimately, it has to be Jesus who who solves the sin problem. An analogy or an image I heard of this, um, yeah, I guess a, an, an analogy is a, is a credit card. Um, the Day of Atonement and similar rituals acted like credit, where they really did have this efficacy. They really did something about sin, or else why would God give us it? But it couldn't really pay the bill. Only Jesus could pay the bill later. So any any efficacy of the blood of goats came ultimately from the blood of Christ. All right. Um, so that's the Day of Atonement. And um, Hebrews is going to, going to talk a lot about the Day of Atonement and compare it with Jesus. Or um, compare the the act of atonement that Jesus did with the atonement that the priest does with the animals. All right. Now, before chapter 5 begins, we see this really powerful verse, the last verse of chapter 4. It says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Oh, this is powerful. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Like I mentioned, only the high priest was allowed to go into the most holy place, the throne of grace, the throne of mercy. And he could only go in once a year. And since only he could go in, they would actually have to tie a rope around his waist in case he died inside the most holy place. And then they could pull him out because you can't just like waltz in there and grab him and pull him out because only the high priest can go in. So they would tie a rope around his waist and pull him out if he died. Well, why would the priest die? Well... So, God didn't have to accept their sacrifice. Uh, the you can you can imagine the people they're waiting outside. The high priest enters the most holy place with the blood, and they're waiting to see if the sacrifice is accepted. Because if it's accepted, then that means that God is doing something about their sin, and they're going to be okay. But if it's not accepted, then shoot, what do we do? And if the priest dies, that's like oh. Does that mean our sacrifice wasn't accepted? So they would wait eagerly outside of the tent, waiting for the high priest to come out as a sign that, yes, the sacrifice is accepted. So Hebrews takes this up and says, well, Jesus, this will be spelled out more later in the letter, but Jesus didn't enter into the earthly tabernacle or the earthly temple. He entered into the heavenly most holy place with his sacrifice on the cross, and we know that it's been accepted, and because it's been accepted, we all, not just the high priest, but we all now can go into the most holy place, into the presence of God with confidence. Why? Because the sacrifice of Christ has been accepted, and God has done something definitive and final about our sin. So that's a really powerful statement. Draw with confidence to the throne of grace. And then chapter 5, 
what chapter five is doing is it's comparing the priesthood of Jesus with the high priest, the Levitical high priest. And it's going to show similarities between them, but ultimately how Jesus surpasses them. So some similarities between them uh, would include that Jesus is, the high priest is appointed. He doesn't take the honor upon himself, but but rather is called by God, just as Aaron was, we read, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed. Uh, The high priest is beset with weaknesses, and because he's beset with weaknesses, this allows him to deal gently with the ignorant and wayward because he can empathize with their situation. While Jesus too, though he didn't... you know, suffer from weakness in the same way as a high priest. He wasn't sinful. He didn't have to make atonement for his own sins. He still, he suffered. He took on our human condition in the flesh, suffered like we do. And because of this, he can, he can be patient with us. He can empathize with our, with our condition. So Jesus is like a high priest, but he's also greater than a high priest. So In the first verse, we hear the high priest offering gifts. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Okay. We almost the, towards the end. So verse seven, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. So the priest offers gifts and sacrifices. Jesus offers loud cries and tears. And it's his prayers, his offering, Jesus' offering, ultimately that that saves us, not the high priest. So Jesus is much like a high priest, but he's also greater. And he doesn't follow after Levi, but rather the order of Melchizedek uh, in verse 10. So he's not a Levitical priest, he's a Melchizedekian priest. All right, before moving on, just want to remind you um, when it says in verse 9 that Jesus was made perfect, this isn't referring to moral perfection. Rather, it's referring to, it's it's a Greek idiom for being made a priest. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is the translation most of the Old, the New Testament refers back to, is referring to the Greek translation, not the Hebrew original. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, where we see um, priests being ordained, it uses this expression, they were made perfect. Made perfect. So Jesus was made a priest, made perfect. All right. Then after that, after this comparison between Jesus and the and the high priest, um. It's going to switch to an exhortation. So if all of this is true about Jesus, then what does this mean about us? Well, ultimately it means don't be dull or sluggish. He repeats this twice, forming bookends around the exhortation. In verse 11 is the first, where he says, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. You've become sluggish. And then he bookends this in... um, verse 12 of chapter 6, so that you, well, I'll start in verse 11 because that's the beginning of the sentence. And we desire 
each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, uh, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So don't be sluggish. And he uses this, this sarcasm to, to prod them. He'll, he says, um, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Clearly, these people are not beginners. I mean, if you read this letter, he's assuming that they are quite matured in their faith uh, and their knowledge of scripture and their knowledge of Christ. So he's, he's being sarcastic. All right, then we see in verse seven, verse 4 of chapter 6, he moves to talking about apostasy, this possibility of becoming a Christian but then abandoning Christ. And he says this, It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, referring there to baptism, who have tasted the heavenly gift, presumably the Eucharist, and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. It's impossible to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. All right, so what does this mean? Does this mean that anyone who falls away after becoming Christian is out of, without hope? Uh, They can't go to confession, they can't... No, 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 no. So... This this uh, connects to Jesus' teaching about the unforgivable sin, which ultimately is the rejection of the salvation offered in Christ. And what he's saying is if you if you abandon Christ and try to find salvation elsewhere, it's impossible. It's impossible to re- be, to be restored to God apart from Christ. Um, the letter to the Hebrews is most likely written to a, a group of Christians who most of them were former Jews who became Christian. And there was probably a temptation among, among them to, to leave Christ in order to go back to following the Mosaic law and trying to find salvation there. And he's saying, if you do that, then you're rejecting the salvation offered in Christ and there's no salvation offered anywhere else. So unless you come back to Christ, then then you're out of luck. All right, so that's a very serious warning there. And then he moves, he kind of changes the the focus. And the the rest of chapter six, he turns to um, talking about God's promises, uh, and and encouraging his audience to trust in God's promises. And he brings up Abraham as an example of of trusting God's promise. And this is this is a big deal and I think it's I think it would be fruitful to turn back to uh the story of Abraham to see just how he trusted God's promises and how that connects with Jesus. So God made a series of promises to Abraham. Uh so Abraham his name at the time was Abram, it later gets changed to Abraham, it gets a little confusing. But so he's Abram, and he has no children, but God makes a promise. 
he, he makes several promises, but among them is he's going to have a son, Isaac, and then through Isaac, through and Isaac's children and children's children, all of Isaac's descendants, God is going to bless all the nations. Specifically through this child that Abraham doesn't have yet. And Abraham is like, how do I know this? And then God says, go get these animals and cut them in half. And this is in Genesis chapter 15. This is super important. He says, go get some animals, cut them in half, and let the pool, let the blood pool in the, in the middle. So Abraham does this. And then we see, uh, this is verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces of the animals. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Woo! All right. So this is a big deal. Big deal. What's going on, though? So God's making a promise to Abram in a way that Abram would understand. And this is how ancient peoples would make make covenants, uh, like a covenant between a, two warring tribes uh, to form peace. They would cut the animals, they would stand in the blood, representatives of the tribe would stand in the blood, and then swear their oaths to each other, making this covenant. And what that means, standing in the blood, is if, if I am unfaithful to the terms of the covenant, then let me become like this dead animal. So they're swearing on their lives. God does this to Abraham. He, he's, he's making this promise to Abraham in a way that Abraham would understand. God is in the blood. God is. Abraham's not. This is a one-sided covenant. God's swearing his fidelity to Abraham. He's in the blood as represented by the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch, God is present in the blood and he makes this promise, among which is included that Abraham will have the son and it will be through this son, Isaac, that God will bless all the nations. So if God is unfaithful to that oath, to that covenant, then God will die like the animals, which is absurd, of course, but... This is a way that Abraham would understand. Can God break his covenant? Can God be unfaithful to his promises? No. And it's not even dependent on Abraham's fidelity because Abraham's not in the blood. Only God's in the blood. So this is a one-sided, he means this. This is going to happen. But Abraham doesn't have a son yet. Fast forward a couple chapters and several years later, God um, gives Abraham his son, Isaac. And then when Isaac grows up, a little bit, we're not sure how old he is, God tells Abraham to kill Isaac. All right, so th- this story of Abraham uh, being willing to kill Isaac is often taken out of context. And when you take it out of context, specifically when you read it apart from Genesis 15, then Genesis 22 sounds absurd. Like, oh, what if God asked me to kill my son? Or, you know, you, you have strange conversations like that was was abraham being being a bad person you know should he have been faithful to god even though it meant doing a moral evil it's like no those questions miss the point entirely god never ever asks anybody to kill their son or their child 
like he does with Abraham. Abraham's the only case. Why? Because Isaac is the only son specifically promised by a covenant that God makes. Can anything happen to Isaac? No, nothing can happen to Isaac because God was in the blood and promised that Abraham's son Isaac would have descendants. Nothing can happen to nothing can happen to Isaac. This is why Abraham's willing to even kill Isaac because he trusts in God's promise. God can't be unfaithful. And it's this faith that God rewards. It's not this blind leap in the darkness that Abraham does. It's, 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 a, it's a trust in God's promise, which he vividly represented to Abraham through the blood of the animals. God can't be unfaithful. If Isaac dies, God dies. It just can't happen. So later in the book of Hebrews, the author will pick this up and say, Abraham trusted that God could even raise Isaac from the dead. Because if if Abraham kills Isaac for God to be faithful, he would have to bring him back from the dead in order to have descendants. Now, if Abraham could have trust, this level of trust in God's fidelity based on the blood of animals, how much more can the Christian have trust in God's fidelity based on the blood of Christ? How much more basis do we have for trust in God? Since our hope is based on the blood of Christ. This becomes the basis of the hope of of martyrs, specifically Christian martyrs, but we also see it foreshadowed um, in the Jewish martyrs that like Abraham's hope in the resurrection, these Jewish martyrs believe that if for God to be faithful, because he swore his covenant to his people, that he would be faithful to his people, that if his people are faithful to God and lose their lives because of it, for God to remain faithful, he would have to raise them up. And this is the basis of our hope in the resurrection, which becomes elevated in Christ. So Christian witnesses, we can, we can with confidence go to our death knowing that God shed his own blood, making this covenant with us, promising his undying fidelity. So that even if we go to our death, God will raise this up in the end. All right, so that takes us to the end of chapter uh, chapter six. And next week, we'll have Father Walmeyer come in and talk about chapters uh, seven and eight. And then I'll be back, I think, the, the following week, or Father Walmeyer and I will both be teaching. I don't, I don't remember off the top of my head. Um, but uh, that's it. I hope you have a, a great time diving into Hebrews and uh, spending time with the Word. All right, God bless.